Welcome to Multiple Perspectives. I'm David Lofgren. I'm thrilled to be joined by author, educator, thought leader, and founder of the Gower crowd, Dr. Adam Gower. In this episode, Dr. Gower takes us on a ride from the crash of 1929 through the Great Recession and finally through the economic uncertainty of 2020 in order to make the case that crowdfunding, as a model for commercial real estate investing, has completely revolutionized the industry. In his latest book, Real Estate Crowdfunding Unleashed, he details the ways in which this relatively new method of raising capital has become, according to his analysis, the fastest growing industry in the history of American finance. I found this discussion to be absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure you will too. Dr. Adam Gower, welcome to Multiple Perspectives. Thank you so much for having me. I'm incredibly excited to have you here. I have to say that when I first started working at Equity Multiple, your podcast, um, the Real Estate Crowdfunding Show, was really foundational in my understanding what the CRE crowdfunding space was at a fundamental level. I'm hoping that our conversation today can serve as a bit of a primer for investors that may have some exposure to traditional real estate investing or you know, have come to understand that Diversifying their portfolio by allocating to alternatives is, you know, generally a savvy play, but may not understand sort of the broader context, uh, historic or regulatory within which this sort of nascent real estate crowdfunding market has emerged. And, and as you argue in your new book, really begun to flourish at this point. I'm thinking our conversation will be best served if we can first establish how commercial real estate investing has historically functioned. So in the book, Unleashed, a fantastic read for anyone who's interested in getting deeper understanding of, of all of the topics we're going to cover today. In your book, you explain that raising capital at the beginning of the 20th century was sort of this like Wild West scenario, right? That the lack of guardrails essentially was part of what led to the hyperinflation and inevitably the crash of 1929. Mm-hmm. And in response, Congress sets up this system that distinguishes between sort of public and private markets. I'm wondering if you can sort of explain what the process was that led to this public-private market distinction and how we've ended up with what was, for most of the 20th century, the like smoke-filled room behind closed doors commercial real estate investing world. Actually, this is, David, my absolute favorite subject to talk about. So I'm really glad that you've asked and I'm glad that you've framed it in the way that you have. So the way that finance, the way that capital was raised initially in the foundation of America, believe it or not, the railroad barons of the, of the 19th century was that they would syndicate their capital raises to the general public through these kind of trees of contacts that they had, almost completely without restriction. There were no restrictions at all. It's absolutely mind-blowing what they got up to. This was an era when income tax was, there was no income tax because it was considered unconstitutional. Imagine that. Totally different time in our history. And the short story is that this as you've described it, this Wild West, eventually led to this massive bubble, of this inflationary bubble that led to the 1929 stock market crash. And in, 19, in, this, in the aftermath, 
Congress recognized that one of the biggest issues was, was financiers' unfettered access to individual investors. Those are the ones that got the worst hit, wiped out. I mean, a lot of wealthy people were wiped out as well. And so they passed the Securities Act of 1933 in order to restrict liquidity. They didn't want this free-for-all anymore, where anyone could say, invest with me, send me a check, right? And I'll send you all this money back. So in 1933, they said, you, you now have to, you can do a public offering. If you want to raise money from the public, you can do a public offering, an IPO, an international public offering, but it has, it's now regulated. You have to make these disclosures. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And it became incredibly expensive and time consuming. No longer can you put an ad in the paper saying, send me a check. Now you have to go through the government, through the SEC. Right. And th this, uh, this IPO process, I mean, this is what we know today as any time a company wants to go public, enter a stock exchange. We're, we're very familiar with this now, but this was a brand new thing in the 30s. This was absolutely brand new. Yeah. This was to stop unfettered access to the general public. It prohibited companies from so general solicitation. That's the term. General solicitation. You can't just go out to the general public and say, send me a check. But they created exemptions. And one of those exemptions was, if you have a personal relationship with somebody, you don't have to do an IPO. You can just ask them. Now, this was geared to business businesses, but the impact on real estate was profound. Because now real estate entrepreneurs were unable to go out and raise money from anybody. They had to have a relationship. And that's what created these smoke-filled rooms. Over the generations since 1933, what happened was if you didn't know somebody who was a developer, you had no access to investing in real estate. And if you were a real estate developer, you, had to, you could only raise money from people you knew. And so from that evolved this kind of cliched country club network. Right. That you would join a country club or a foundation or go on a board in order to meet wealthy people who you could get to know. And once you got to know them, you could then say, hey, look, I, you know, my business is real estate. I've got a deal at the corner of Walk and Crosswalk. Would you like to invest? And so because these super wealthy people were networking together, a couple of other things happened. One, minimum investment amounts just continued to climb. Right, you need a million dollars to invest with me. Right. Because now you're dealing with ultra wealthy. I just got off a call with, with a, a a shop now who have they they make phone calls to ten people, right? And raise millions of dollars. It's right. all they've ever known, right, throughout the history, or a hundred people. Which historically sort of makes sense because if you're trying to raise fifty million dollars, it's much easier to have 10 investors at $5 million or $5 million or five investors at $10 million than it is to have a hundred investors or something. That's just sort of burdensome, right? Right. How many people do you know though, that can write a check for $5 million into a deal and write it's, I mean, you think about the depths of what that means. That means in all likelihood, decades of knowing somebody, possibly generational relationships, right? Where right. you have these connections, where people will write this kind of, of check outside of the institutional world. And the other thing that it did was it created these silos of, of small communities of ultra wealthy people around the country that had no communication with each other. 
they were all they were all housed in their own little bubble of of network. They knew a handful of people in the city in which they lived and the developer. And so their understanding of what was happening anywhere else in the country was negligible. Right. It's interesting you, you point this out in the book that essentially, I mean, that's like it's like the opposite of free market principles in, in the sense that you have these little pockets, but no one is responding to anyone else's. They, they have no understanding of what anyone else's terms are for any of these deals, what kind of returns are being promised, any of the sort of distribution aspects of the deals. It's, it's fascinating to think about that. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly the, the way, the, you know, the comparison is to say you imagine what the stock market would look like. If you could only invest in a company whose CEO you knew personally, <laughs> right? Right. right. How, how would the world work? You would only know a very small number of companies, if you knew any at all. You wouldn't know anything about anything else going on in the country. Total dysfunction. Right. Zero information exchange between these different isolated networks. And that's how real estate evolved over the generations because of the Securities Act of 1933. And that's, that, that's the status quo for 90 years? Exactly, up until 2012. Right, so, so the spoiler alert here is that 2012, the Jobs Act, the Obama administration's um, Jobs Act, is really the turning point for, for the industry. Uh, really what gives birth to the industry that Equity Multiple is working inside of, that you're working inside of. And I want to get to that in a second. But before we get to that moment, remind us what's happening <clears throat> prior to 2012, sort of the moment that we're in that leads to, because this has been, you know, this has been, a, this will be a big paradigm shift, but it's been the status quo for 90 years. So what's the thing that finally sort of makes this an important shift how do we get to that moment? All right. So this is the exact inverse of what happened in 1929. Oversimplifying, of course. But basically what happened, if you remember, in 2007, there was a financial crisis. The global financial crisis almost brought the entire financial system, not just of the United States, but the entire world to its knees. Banks stopped lending. Institutions stopped investing. Everything, liquidity totally dried up. There was no money in the economy. It just stopped. People stopped transacting. In contrast to what happened in the run-up to 1929 when there was too much liquidity. So Congress fortunately thought about this and thought, you know what, we need to release liquidity. We need to make it easier for people to raise money because no one's investing. And so what they did was they passed the Jobs Act, the Jumpstart Our Business Startups, underscore business. This wasn't intended, again, for real estate. This was intended for small businesses, business startups. And what the Jobs Act said, basically, was you can now go out and raise money from anyone. There were various sections of the Jobs Act that allowed for that. Uh, but they, they reversed the 1933 Act restrictions on raising capital by allowing people to solicit from the general public again for the first time since 1933 in order to bring liquidity back into the market. That was, that was the fundamental shift. 
And I want to put a, a pin in this. Uh, you've mentioned it a couple times now, and, and I think it's fascinating and important to understand from the standpoint that we're in, which is that both the 1933 Securities Act and the 2012 Jobs Act, neither of them are intended inherently for re the commercial real estate industry at all. This, you know, jumpstart our, our businesses startups even sort of implies that the goal here is we want to get small and medium-sized businesses moving again, right? Correct. They're not thinking real estate. They're thinking the, the mom-and-pop shops on Main Street or these, these uh, sort of up-and-coming maybe digital businesses that have just been hit so hard. So can you talk about maybe what the initial intention was? Do you have a sense of and, – and this I should mention that um, your 2018 book – um, leaders uh, of the crowd. Leaders yeah. of the crowd, right? Yeah. You actually go into more detail here about mm. sort of the lead up to the Jobs Act. But wh what was Congress envisioning when they're when they're saying, okay, we need to inject some capital here, or we need to free up the liquidity of of capital? That that's exactly what they were thinking. I mean, in, for my book, Leaders of the Crowd, you're quite right. Thanks so much for researching that. Uh, I did speak. I spoke to people in Congress and the White House, lobbyists and early adopters in the real estate industry. And I asked, asked them, you know, was real estate, did you think about real estate in Congress and the lobbyists? Zero. Simply wasn't part of the equation. All they were thinking about was how do we bring money to small companies, small and medium-sized companies? How do we do that? How do we make it easier for them to raise money from their customers, for crying out loud? How do we do that? They can't get debt. And they're stuck, and so they're, they're it's dragging on the economy. That was their motivation. It was as simple as that. I mean, again, there was there was a lot more going on in terms of the technicalities of what was happening. But in at, at its core, that's what they were trying to do. How do we enable these companies to go out and actually raise money from people that have money who would like to invest? And so that's why they came. There were three sections, important sections to the Jobs Act. One was what's called regulation crowdfunding, which is Reg CF. And that's kind of where the term crowdfunding really took off and, and has been, become associated with real estate. And unfortunately, has been associated in a negative way because crowdfunding is things like GoFundMe or... Uh, right, they think know, of Kickstarter or something. Kickstarter, people, yeah. you know, you think of students, you know, and a widget or something. <laughs> but that, right. that's regulation crowdfunding. That's very, very small parts of real estate industry, uh, f uh, capital formation. Then there was Reg A+, which was taking the IPO idea and making it easier. So it's also known as a mini IPO. It's quicker, cheaper, uh, and easier to launch an IPO using Reg A+. And that allows you to raise money from non-accredited investors as well. But right. the most important was a change in Regulation D-506. Previously, it was 506B. It's very technical, but 506B said you can only raise money from people you know. The Jobs Act created 506C, which allows you to raise money from anybody. And that was, again, dis that was designed for small businesses. But think about this. This is why it affects real estate. Every time a real estate sponsor goes out and buys a building and gets debt and equity for that deal, they form a company, they form a new company, a new co. 
Newco LLC, corner of Walk and Crosswalk LLC. That's a new company, as a business startup. And so that's why it falls under security, SEC jurisdiction. And that's why it's impacted by the Jobs Act and also why it happened to be an unintended consequence. Nobody thought about real estate, and yet real estate has been the biggest beneficiary of the Jobs Act, even though it was never intended for real estate. Right, and th this is one of these things that our investors are frequently surprised by when they're just sort of learning about the machinations of how these investments work is that, you know, you're really investing in an LLC, uh, uh, you know, a sort of single purpose vehicle or a, a single purpose entity that is solely created to invest in these these building projects or these remodels or whatever. And that business is going to get shut down as, as soon as the investment is has completed, has, has exited, right? But this is the, that nuance. And I, you know, I also want to put a pin in the point that you mentioned. We've got this Reg D 506B. That's the status quo. That's the world that all of these um, real estate businesses have been working under since 1933. 506C is a brand new section. Is that true? Yeah, it's a totally different, it's a brand new, it's a completely different section. So they're going in, they're writing, we're going to put another chapter in here. And this yeah. chapter is going to... It's called 506C and what it does. And by the way, just to back up ever so slightly... Please. So you talked about single purpose entities and SPEs and et cetera. So it could get quite, could, could get very technical. It's really simple. When you invest in a real estate deal, you're buying stock. That's what you're doing. Right. You're buying stock in the company that owns the real estate, that has an operations team, that's the sponsor, that has shareholders, that's you as the investor. You're investing. It's like investing in IBM or in, uh, in Apple. You're buying a share of the company, a little piece of the company, and you expect that the management team will run the company properly, right? That's what you expect. Right, right, right. It's exactly the same. It just happens to be the product is not an iPhone. It's a piece of real estate. Still has a management team, et cetera. So you're buying stock. It's as simple as that. So what Congress said with 506C was it changed a few things. Uh, the most important was you can advertise. I mean, that's really the fundamental difference. As long as you are raising money from accredited investors, you can advertise, you can put a billboard up, you can put a big sign on your website that says, invest now, click here, send me a check. You never were able to do that before. Now you still have to verify somebody's accredited. And of course, there are other securities requirements, but nothing onerous at all. The big difference was 506C, you can advertise, you can market your deals overtly. You can go to a conference and stand up and pitch your deal, right? You can, you can talk to somebody at a, at a dinner table you've never met before and say, yeah, do you want to invest? You've never been allowed to do that before. Okay, great. And, and this, is, this is coming also at a time when the continuation of the expansion of markets moving onto the internet and this, these sort of tech platforms becoming standard places, as you mentioned in, in the book, we're seeing these dis disruptions left and right. These industries that once were individual cab companies, now it's Uber, you know, mm. once were, uh, I think, as you mentioned, like uh, travel advisors, travel advisors aren't really that much of a thing anymore because we have that at our fingertips. There are these marketplaces that emerge. Mm -hmm. 
take me through the early days of of the crowdfunding experience because and, and I should mention that a good portion of the new book spends time exploring these like really interesting data that you've that you've collected and talking about the trends that are borne out in these data and we don't have time to go into all of those insights today but certainly worth a read because there are a few things that really blew me away in in picking this apart but mm. i want to talk about the first few years so 2012 to say 2015 what do we see happen like well, how do, how does this industry start to emerge what a great question yeah i, lo I love history i've told you already I'm, I'm a big i'm a history buff so what happened initially was there were light bulbs that went off <laughs> over the heads of early adopters, entrepreneurs. And one of those light bulbs was, gosh, for the first time in history, now digital marketing, any kind of marketing, can be applied to raising money in real estate. And so some of the leaders in the industry, were some of the very early adopters, were real estate experts or marketing experts. And they went out uh, or they had connections or friends and they got together, they formed partnerships. So a digital marketing expert would get together with a real estate person and they form a company and try to raise money to live in this intersection between the two industries. And one of the biggest challenges that they had originally was, okay, do we go after investors first to say, hey, look, you can invest? Or do we go after sponsors first and say, hey, look, you can raise money through our platform because now, you know, we'll do all the advertising for you. And so there was a chicken and an egg because platforms, these early adopters were worried. If we get a deal, we persuade somebody, yes, list on our platform, and then nobody shows up and nobody invests, then we just blew it. But at the same time, if we go out and tell investors, hey, look, we've, you can invest now in real estate and there's nothing for them to invest in, they'll never come back. So there was this chicken and egg experience with the early adopters. But what they found was that as soon as they put a deal up on their website, investors invested. And these were, by the way, very, very small deals. These were $100,000, I mean, really, really small scale, but they sold out super fast and that created momentum. So they then went out and found more sponsors and tried to find more investors. And what's that was basically it. That was the, the question everyone had. What are you focused on? The other thing that happened that's very interesting, actually, David, is that the first thing that they believed was that if we build it, they will come. So if we put up a website that says invest in this deal, investors will show up and sponsors will show up. But what they realized after two, three years of trial and error with what's going on is that the glue that bound everything together was education. So what we need to do is we need to educate. So instead of talking to every investor explaining what's crowdfunding, what's cat rate, what's IRR, what's multifamily, what's this, what's that, and what's the other, we'll create content that educates investors and we'll put that up on the website. It was like this slow process to realization that digital marketing means education. You have to educate. And so now you can go to your website, my website, and any number of other websites, and there is a massive amount of content. 
massive amounts of educational materials. But at the very beginning, there was no sense that anybody needed to do that. Right. And it, it makes sense because, you, you know, you think you can get an investor as far as the offering. But as soon as they crack open a, an offering memorandum or, or, or uh, you know, a pro forma, unless you're well versed in this stuff, it, it doesn't make any sense. There are a lot of very complicated concepts. And it, it's fascinating to me that this has become the MO for the industry is that we lead with education, you know, that we lead with this. The outreach is less about saying, hey, let me sell you on this hot deal. And it's more about saying, are you aware that this is even an opportunity that you can take advantage of? And, you know, it, in, in making your case for the value of this world that we're entering into, you talk about the difference in this old style of soliciting investments from your buddies at the country club versus what we're dealing with now. And there's this really interesting, there are a couple of moments where in the data you can see a projection of what is potentially going to happen in the future around 2014 or so 2018 ah. you start to see these <laughs> these sort of opposite motions in the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things over the last year you point out specifically in the volume of offerings that ha are brought to the fore in 2020 there's this really impressive i mean it it knocked me off my feet when I when I saw the chart that you have in in the book can you just talk about what the data is bearing out in this moment what we see as the trends between this old and new way of investing I'm just going to pick up on that explosive growth in 2020 and specifically total amounts invested in crowdfunding in 2020 real estate crowdfunding went from 7 billion in 2019 to 15 billion in 2020 unbelievable growth, over doubled during one of the m deepest recessions that we've known since the global financial crisis of 2007. At the same time, non-crowdfunding capital formation in real estate went down 6%. So non-crowdfunded capital formation dropped, crowdfunding over doubled in 2020. And here's what's going on. I remember during the global financial crisis, what I saw at that time was the classic recessionary dynamic in terms of finance, for the way that finance moved. Sponsors with access to deal flow didn't have access to capital. Uh, institutions stopped financing. They just pulled back completely because they didn't want to invest in something that was, they had no idea what the future held for, right, in real estate. Banks stopped lending and sponsors had these tiny networks of investors who all said, whoa, wait a minute, we're just going to, you know, put up defenses while we figure out what's going on. So what happened was that real estate prices cratered. I was at the sharp end of it. So we were selling stuff 10 cents on the dollar because nobody had money. But people who did have money had no access. And the people who had access, the sponsors were prohibited from contacting those people with money. Doctors and tech experts and those people who were making money. So there was a barrier between them, the Securities Act of 1933. So in 2020, when the market dropped again, there was no debt. You talk to any sponsor, banks stopped lending, institutions backed up. There was, they, they couldn't, their usual sources of capital dried up. 
And so they had realized that there is this community, this population of investors, the accredited investors of America, who are looking at zero yields, 35% collapse in the stock market, their portfolios flop. They're looking for yield, they're looking for stability, they're looking for diversification, they're looking for long-term protection, they're looking for all kinds of things that the stock market didn't offer. Boom. They're the people who should be investing in real estate because it solves all of those problems. It's counter-cyclical to the stock market in that sense, right, in 2020. And so that's what happened. Sponsors came to the market seeking other avenues for capital and investors hungrily responded because they were desperate to find alternatives to this volatility that was occurring in the stock market. That's exactly what you saw in 2020. And that's why I say crowdfunding is recession resilient. It doesn't mean that you will not suffer downturns, but what it means is that crowdfunding is, has proven itself a mainstream alternative for both sponsors and investors, even, and in fact, especially during downturns when opportunities rise, when there are more opportunities than you would have during a hot market. It's fascinating. And, it, you know, we're constantly speaking about the decorrelated nature of, of commercial real estate returns and public markets. But the point that you're making that for sponsors as well, for the what we think of as the, the supply side of this equation, there's also this decorrelation in the availability of capital. And that's it's fascinating to me. And, you know, and, and I can't recommend enough the, the, the data that you surface in the book. There are a, a bunch of insights like this that just continuously surprised me to see actually borne out in, in these charts. Dr. Adam Gower, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an incredible conversation. I, I really appreciate your time. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm truly Equity Multiple, one of the top shops in the country. It's a real pleasure and honor to be on the show. Thank you. Happy to have you. And uh, again, for folks looking to uh, access the new book, Unleashed by Dr. Gower, you can find that at gowercrowd.com. Gowercrowd.com, just click anything red. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again to my guest, Dr. Adam Gower, and thanks to you for listening to Multiple Perspectives. Don't forget to subscribe to the show in your podcast app of choice. For a link to Dr. Gower's new book or to see the offerings currently available on the Equity Multiple platform, we've got links in the show notes. For Equity Multiple, I'm David Lofgren. See you next time. <laughs>